Let us worship God. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee that by thy grace and mercy thou hast delivered us through Jesus Christ from the dominion of ungodly men, from the dominion of organizations, from the dominion of those who would rule over us as petty gods, and has made us free men and women in Christ Jesus. Our God, how great and marvelous thou art! How great is our freedom in thee! Grant, O Lord, that we may be apostles of the freedom of Christ unto all nations, and unto all generations to the end of time, that they may know the saving power of our Lord, and that if the Son make us free, we are free indeed. In Christ's name, amen. Our scripture is Numbers 20. Verses 14 through 29. Numbers 20. Edom's hostility, Aaron's death. Numbers 20, beginning with verse 14. And Moses sent messengers from Kadesh unto the king of Edom, thus saith thy brother Israel. Thou knowest all the travail that hath befallen us, how our fathers went down into Egypt, and we have dwelt in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians vexed us and our fathers, and when we cried unto the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel, and hath brought us forth out of Egypt, and behold, we are in Kadesh, a city in the uttermost of thy border. Let us pass, I pray thee, through thy country. We will not pass through the fields or through the vineyards, neither will we drink of the water of the wells. We will go by the king's highway. We will not turn to the right hand nor to the left until we have passed thy borders. And Edom said unto him, Thou shalt not pass by me, lest I come out against thee with a sword. And the children of Israel said unto him, We will go by the highway. And if I and my cattle drink of thy water, then I will pay for it. I will only, without doing anything else, go through on my feet. And he said, Thou shalt not go through. And Edom came out against him with much people and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through the border. Wherefore Israel turned away from him. And the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, journeyed from Kadesh and came unto Mount Hor. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron and Mount Hor by the coast of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered unto his people, 
For he shall not enter into the land which I have given unto the children of Israel, because he rebelled against my word at the waters of Meribah. Take Aaron and Eleazar his son, and bring them up unto Mount Hor, and strip Aaron of his garments, and put them upon Eleazar his son, and Aaron shall be gathered unto his people, and shall die there. And Moses did as the Lord commanded, and they went up into Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. And Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them upon Eleazar his son. And Aaron died there on the top of the mountain, and Moses and Eleazar came down from the mount. And when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, they mourned for Aaron thirty days even all the house of Israel. In these verses, we see Moses attempting to gain permission to pass through the kingdom of Edom. He wanted to pass from the plains south of the Dead Sea to the plains of the Jordan across from Jericho. It was from this point that entry was later to be made into Canaan. Moses promised a peaceful passage. Israel would stay on the king's highway. It would not allow any livestock to stray into any fields or vineyards. If their sheep or cattle needed water, they would pay for it. If Edom did not want to sell any water, they would hurry through without it. Moses also reminded Edom of two facts. First, as both knew, they were related people. Edom was descended from Esau and Israel from Jacob, Esau's younger twin brother. They were thus not rightfully enemies, but should have been friends. Second, Israel had been delivered from Egypt by the angel of the Lord, so they came with God's favor. But Edom always resented Israel's priority. Edom, although without true faith, saw itself as God's chosen people. Centuries later, Rome united Judah and Edom under an Edomite king, Herod. Edom was also called Edomia, and it's a word meaning red, R-E-D. The forcible union of Judea and Edom, or Edomia, under Herod, was deeply resented by most Jews, but accepted by others. A heretical strain was introduced into the Jewish world. The faith of Edom was in fertility cult. Earlier in the days of the Maccabees, John Hyrcanus conquered all of Edom and required the forcible conversion of all its people to Judaism. In the war of 66 to 70 A.D. between Judea and Rome, the Edomites were regarded by Titus and the Romans as an important part of the Judean military forces. 
Edom had been merged into Judea, even though they represented two religiously alien strains. Now some have held that the fondness of some radical Jews as the Bolsheviks for the color red is the survival of the Edomite heritage. It is at least important to remind ourselves that over the centuries there have been deep internal divisions within the ranks of those called Jews. That there have been groups totally at odds with each other, who have very, very often rightly regarded the others as not real Jews. There's another factor here. The Edomites were descended from Israel, or Jacob's older son, Esau. And they believed themselves to be the ones through whom the Messiah would come, if there was one. That was their feeling. We have an account of King Herod's pretension. Having helped with Christ's crucifixion very gladly, he felt ready to claim the Messiahship for himself, since all the people were stirred up over the messianic question. According to Acts 12, 21 through 23, we read, And upon a set day Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory. And he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. From other accounts, we read that he was arrayed in garments of silver thread so that in the sun it glistened as though the sun itself was standing there on the balcony orating to the people. It was his way of saying he was the son of light, the Messiah. His very painful death is also recorded by Josephus. The strong part the Edomites played in the Jewish-Roman War was a part of their desire to take over Israel and become themselves the chosen people in charge of the entire nation permanently. With this background, we can understand the response of the king of Edom. He did two things. First, he refused passage to Israel. And he did this as ungraciously as possible. Second, he sent out an army to the border to block the way. Now, the king's highway that they wanted to pass over is referred to in Numbers 31:22, and again in Deuteronomy 2, verse 27. According to a contemporary scholar, John Sturdy, this road ran from Damascus in Syria now, 
down through what is now called Jordan, or the country of Jordan, to the Gulf of Aqaba. It is, in Arabic, still called the Road of the Rulers. Centuries later, Emperor Trajan rebuilt it. Moses and Israel at this time chose not to fight. They chose instead to take a long route around Edom to Mount Hor. Their purpose towards Edom was peaceful. Well, the time had now come for Aaron to die. Aaron, we are told, shall be gathered unto his people. He would not be allowed to enter the promised land for his part in the sin at Meribah. All the same, his death, like Moses' death later, was an honorable one. The phrase, gathered unto his people, or gathered unto his fathers, is used here. It would be possible to talk for an entire hour on what that means in the Bible, and I have done so on occasion. It normally is used to describe the death of a godly man in his old age. It is an important term in the Bible. So its basic meaning is that a reunion takes place with one's ancestors in God's kingdom. Its implication is of rest and victory. It is a term which essentially refers to life after death. Then second, a minor meaning, not always the case, refers to burial in an ancestral burial ground. Over the centuries and even now, many families have had a burying ground to which family members are brought. And it has been used in that sense in this country. Aaron, Moses, and Aaron's son Eliezer went to the top of the mountain. Moses ritually stripped Aaron of his high priestly garments and put them on Eliezer. Sometime thereafter, Aaron died. He was buried there. Moses and Eliezer returned to the camp. There was then a 30-day period of mourning. Now, this custom of 30 days of mourning was common in Christendom until recently for all great personages. It used to be in the last century a mourning band was worn on the arm, and that still survived to a degree when I was a child. We still do have uh, this sign of mourning. Thirty days when a great and important personage in the country dies, when the flag is flown at half-mast. All this comes out of the Bible. Aaron died, but the priesthood did not die. God's servants are office-bearers who serve under God and for his purposes. Similarly, judges are not the law, even though many confuse themselves and their works with the law. 
They are, like priests, God's ministry of justice, and that ministry does not end with their death. Thus, priests, ministers, public officers, judges, and others must see themselves as more, no more, no more than God's agents. They have no independent authority, and their office does not give them any special wisdom or superiority. They are to be agents of the Lord. The comment of Joseph Parker on this chapter is superb. And I quote, We live then in the scheme of providence. Life is not atheistic. Our sufferings have an explanation. Our weakness is not an accident but the outcome of a series of processes often lying uh, beyond the line of imagination. The lesson is that we should accept life solemnly, pass through all its processes circumspectly, do nothing at our bidding or for the gratification of our will or fancy, but should always say, My God, thy will be done. Let no man undertake to be God for himself. Let him occupy his definite position as servant, errand-bearer, worker in the vineyard, and let his spirit express itself substantially thus. Lord, at thy bidding I would go. At thy bidding, Lord, I would stay. Give me understanding of my time. Give me the noble Christly heart and inspire me by thy Holy Spirit that I may be enabled so to succeed as to ripen into a harvest of satisfaction and gladness in the coming days. No man can live in that spirit without being in heaven in, as to all the substance and quality of heaven's meaning. That is what is meant by praying without ceasing, namely, living in the prayerful spirit, always being in touch with God, ever having God's throne in view, God's law at heart, God's will, the inspiration and direction of life, unquote. It is worth noting that according to Numbers 33:39 that Aaron was 123 years of age when he died. At that age, he walked up a mountain to his burial site. As with Moses later, his grave was to be known only to God, not to men generally. They were thus preserved to a silent dignity in death. There is an oblique reference to Aaron and to priests generally in Hebrews 5, 1 to 4. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men and things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and them that are out of the way, so that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. 
and by reason thereof he ought as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sin. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. By his very weakness, Aaron was, we are told, a compassionate high priest. He was thus a type of Christ. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Henry H.B. Lydon in The Family Churchman, April 27, 1887, calls attention to the quiet dignity of Aaron's death. And I quote, Nothing is more noticeable in the account of Aaron's death than his deliberate preparation for it. He did not let death come on him. He went to meet it. There was a twofold motive in the act of Moses in stripping Aaron of his garment. First, it was to show that the office of the high priesthood did not depend on the life of any single man. And second, it reminded Aaron personally of the solemn truth of the utter solitariness of the soul and death. The phrase of Moses, Aaron was gathered to his people, seems to point to a world in which the bygone generations of men still live, a world of the existence of which God's ancient people were well assured, though they knew much less of it than we, unquote. That phrase means that our ancestors who are in Christ, whose names we don't even know, we will be gathered unto them and will be known by them, and we will know them. Well, some years had now passed. Numbers 33-38 tells us that Aaron's death was in the 40th year after the Exodus, on the first day of the fifth month. The older generation was disappearing as God cleared the way for the conquest of Canaan. Not entirely so, however, because two older men provided the leadership for the conquest, Joshua and Caleb. It was not the younger generation, but these two older men who led the people into Canaan and victory. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we give thanks unto thee for this thy word. We give thanks unto thee that we live in thy providence, that all things have an explanation, that there are no accidents, that all things have a purpose, which though it is beyond our imagination, is a glorious one, and its purpose is that thy will be done, that we grow in grace in thee, that we be better prepared for the tasks to be accomplished here and for our responsibilities 
throughout all eternity. Our Father, great and marvelous are thy ways, and we thank thee. In Christ's name, amen. Are there any questions now about our lesson? Yes. What? It was there that they were commanded to go and speak to the rock and water would come out of it and provide for them. But they were impatient, rebellious. They were angry at God because of all that he had put them through, and God punished them for that. We often disguise our anger at God by being angry with people. So we take it out on those who are close to us, uh, because we don't dare take it out on God. And in a sense, it was anger against God, and God judged them. When I was a boy, in those days, the army still had a cavalry, and the saying was, if the general had a fight with his wife, he took it out on the officers below him, who took it out on those below them until it reached the sergeant, who took it out on the corporal, who took it out on the private, who took it out on the army mule. And that's why army mules were so cussed. Well, this is the case here, you see. They were upset that God had put them through so much. And now, again, these people, they had to put up with them. So their anger was expressed, and God judged them for it. Any other questions or comments? Yes. This is a little off the subject, but... I was wondering if you could give me a, a definition of a humanist. And in, in the background to that question, <clears throat> sometimes we refer to a humanist as those who ascribe to the tenets of the humanist manifestos. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I've heard the term used sort of for non-Christians in general, and sometimes uh, somewhere in between there. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could yes. clarify. Humanism is defined for us in the Bible. It's the world's second oldest religion. It's defined in Genesis 3, 1 through 5. And what is the essence of it? It is submitting to the tempter who says, Yea, hath God said? In other words, doubt God's word. And then... Ye shall be as God, every man his own God, knowing. And the word Greek, uh, the in the Hebrew for knowing, has the connotation of determining. Determining for yourself what is good and evil. You are the ultimate judge. 
the arbiter, the determiner of everything. There are lots of humanists in the pulpit. They set themselves in judgment over God's word as to what you can believe and what you shouldn't believe and what is obsolete and uh, what is myth and so on. A humanist is defined for us in Genesis 3, 1 to 5, and it's the gospel of Satan. It makes man his own God. It denies that God is Lord over all. Is, is a very broad one in terms of, of all those who are in rebellion against God in, yes. in any form. Then. Yes. You cannot limit it to the humanist manifesto because that's, or either one of the humanist manifestos, they are excellent expressions of the humanistic faith. But it existed long before and it comes right out of Genesis 3, 1 to 5, and it's the tempter's program. So it's the second oldest religion and the most universal one. All forms other than a, a true and faithful biblical faith are humanistic in some form or other. So all the non-Christian, non-biblical religions are humanistic. Yes. Not in a literal sense, but as a type of Christ. He was the first humanity created in God's image, and that, in that sense he is called the Son. So that because he is created in God's image, in terms of God's communicable attributes, not his incommunicable attributes, which are uh, aspects of his divinity. Uh, therefore, in that sense, by creating man in his image, he called him his son, typically. Just as he speaks of Israel, my son, I will call Israel my son out of Egypt. Just as he speaks of us as his children, it's by the adoption of grace. But the only begotten Son, the only true Son, is Jesus Christ. Well, the first human race is the fallen humanity all around us. The second human race is a new human race created by Christ and all those who are born again in him. So we are, we are born into the first human race as sons of Adam. 
Now we are, by the adoption of grace, sons of God. We are born in the new humanity of Jesus Christ. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, we are told that the second Adam is from above, from heaven, and that we are members of him. So, uh, the uh, terminology in the days of the early church was, uh, if you were a Jew, you spoke of Jews and Gentiles as the two races. If you were a Greek, you spoke of Greeks and barbarians. If you were a Roman, you spoke of Romans and non-Romans. You divided the world in two. Well, the Christians called themselves the third human race because they had no part to do with the distinctions that other people made between them and us their distinction was that all those distinctions are obsolete. We are a new human race that God has created miraculously through Christ. So we are the sons of God and the daughters of God by the adoption of grace. Yes? What people descended from Ishmael, and which, and, and where is the origin of the Arabic people? And where? And what is the origin of today's Arabic people? The Arabic peoples claim descent, and probably rightfully so, from Ishmael. And uh, therefore, they claim to be the children of. Abraham with a priority over the Jews. So the religious issue is very much uh, alive on that score. And the Quran claims to be the truer account of uh, the chosen people. And uh, therefore, uh, they look to Abraham, uh, the tombs of the patriarchs are to them holy places, and Jerusalem is to them a holy place as well as Mecca, and that's why there is not only a political but an intensely religious tension between the Arabs and the Jews. Now, Ishmael uh, was cast out for his sin. However, the evidence seems to indicate that Ishmael, although not his descendants, did return to the faith and that he and uh, Isaac together buried their father. And you could not participate in the service in antiquity if you were 
a faithless and unbelieving child. So uh, it indicated that Ishmael had come to the faith, but his descendants, of course, departed from it. Any other questions? Yes. This one is also off the subject somewhat, but Pat Robertson has just written a book entitled The New World Order, in which he outlines a number of trends and events that he feels it is important for God's people to understand. I'm wondering if you have read the book or if you have any comments on it. I have not read the book. I have no comments on it. My one comment is that uh, Pat Robertson, uh, not too long ago with his wife, vacationed in the Riviera with an African leader who is who is his host and who has countless Christians in prison, and the money for the vacation came from Israel. Pat Robertson is really a foreign agent. So I regard his word as worthless. Really strong statement. Uh, could you elaborate? A foreign agent from which country? Well, immediately of an African country. And secondarily, but actually, the money channeled through Israel. Any time you receive foreign funds from a state, technically, you are to register as a foreign agent, and he has not done so. We don't pay attention to the law. There are a great many people in Washington who are receiving money from all kinds of countries they technically should be registered. At one time, this was a law strictly enforced. If you are receiving country, uh, country's money, you are their mouthpiece. Moreover, Pat Robertson at point after point has been so obviously heretical but uh, I don't see how anyone can pay attention to what he has to say. He believes in God's unconditional love. That's nonsense. That leads to saying if we sin, grace will abound. Not that when we sin, God cuts us off. So, we have a very, very ugly situation today in that this belief in unconditional love, God's unconditional love for the Jews, for any Christian, no matter what he does, is being propagated. The center of it is Bob Thiem in Houston, Texas, who has written that you can commit every sin in the Bible and a lot that nobody has yet thought of, and once you've said yes to Jesus, he's bound to save you. In other words, it's a one-way contract. That's blasphemy. You can bind God, and God cannot bind you with his word. That's what the doctrine of unconditional love means. It is blasphemy. 
And I don't think words are sufficiently strong for any Christian to express with regard to anyone who affirms unconditional love because it's a blank check to go and sin as you please. Yes, man then controls God. Well, our time is virtually up. Let us conclude with prayer. O Lord, our God, we give thanks unto thee that thou art on the throne. And not all the plans of men, nor all the wealth of men, nor all the hopes of men can change a syllable of thy word or a syllable of thy purpose. Great and marvelous art thou, O Lord, and thy ways shall prevail, and we rejoice that thou art God and thou alone. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. Amen.